0: gonna have a real good time together
1: we're gonna have a real good time together we're gonna laugh the child together have a real good time
2: together na.
0: Welcome back to Joker Men Podcast, the podcast about Lou Reed and John Cale and the Velvet Underground, especially the latter today. Because we are talking about The Velvet Underground. We're talking about the first album, The Velvet Underground
1: and Nico. Not making you folks wait too long like we did on the early Bob material previously. I'm Ian. I'm Evan. And uh, we're talking about a signature piece of New York music, maybe the signature piece. So we figured that it only made sense to get a signature New York artist. We've got uh, a real heavy hitter lined up today. He's a meditation expert, the lead singer of the band Zopa, uh, and a podcaster uh, just like us, actually. I might have a couple TV credits or something, too, but I haven't really looked too much into that. Uh, Michael Imperioli, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Please. The pleasure is all ours. So what can you tell us a little bit about your history with uh, the velvets and lou did you start kind of as a lou fan and then work backwards to the velvets or did you start getting into the velvets and then work through lou's career what was that kind of like for you i started out as a lou fan um
2: and not long after uh got into the velvet underground like uh, early 80s i sure. started listening. um uh at that time you know what really, uh, uh, R.E.M. had done uh, Pale Blue Eyes mm-hmm. cover uh, really early in their career. And that was one of the, um, I had never heard that song before. And um, uh, I was into R.E.M. Back, th- back then. And, um, and then I realized, oh, it was Lou Reed's band. And that was one of the first connections, believe it or not, to, um, to the Velvet Underground. I think they also did Femme Fatale if I'm not mistaken. R.E.M. did
1: Femme Fatale. Yeah. Nice.
0: There's, there's an interesting quote in this little documentary about the Velvets, but uh, where they interviewed most of them, all of them, actually. And Nico actually has this interesting little missive about the 80s feeling like a continuation of the 60s. She says, like, feels like the 70s didn't happen, like we just went from the 60s into the 80s. <laughs> I think musically, you get some of that with bands in the 80s, like R.E.M., like kind of, Picking up right where that trail left off with with the Velvet Underground in the mid '60s. I
2: I agree. I mean, and it's not it's not just um, the Velvets. It's the spirit of the '60s because REM kind of brought a hippie kind of aesthetic and hippie spirit to punk. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that was kind of what really set them apart from the in the kind of post punk world. Is that they combined those two things, which no one had quite really done that. Um, and uh, the 80s kind of made us look back and see well, where did this punk thing that exploded in the 70s, where did that all start? Right. Um, and arguably, you could say,
1: <laughs> right, kind of around here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think uh, you get too many arguments against you. I think this really is uh, this really is kind of the the ground zero, the initial oh, but, big bang of that.
0: But they didn't have any clothespins or anything in their clothes, so you know, was it really punk music? Right. Uh, yeah. You know, they didn't. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of
2: neon or um,
0: anything. Spiky hair, uh, torn clothes. So I don't know if they were really that uh, edgy. You know,
2: <laughs> but I think the punk. You know, to me, punk is much more an artistic thing than you know that whole. That, that really was after it became kind of a, a commodity, you know right. what I mean? I, I you know.
0: hope you know that I'm being really uh, sarcastic. No, I know. <laughs> no, but a lot of people are not. You know, no, a lot really, of no, that's you know,
2: true. punk as that, you know, and as much more relate to the British, you know, punk movement. And it was much more a, you know, artistic avant-garde, you know, art movement than anything mm-hmm. else, you know? Exactly. Um, I say it,
0: the first one of the first bands to actually be labeled with punk, I think, oh, is actually Television, uh, uh, around the time of you know the, the big scene in CBGBs, and that's I feel like a little bit o- overlooked, but they have a lot in common with the Velvet Underground and aesthetically, visually, they don't they didn't go in for a lot of the clothes or the gimmicks of yeah they don't look like the sex dress yeah.
2: No, but Richard Hell, Except for Richard <laughs> who was originally in television. Who
0: started that all, yeah, kind actually. Of created the sex total exception there, yeah.
2: That's one connection.
0: Also, Robert Quine is, uh, was in The Voidoids and would later play with Lou. Yeah,
2: and like Tom, you know, taking the name Verlaine, you know, which Lou brought that whole kind of transgressive literary style into right. rock lyrics, I think, and, yeah. and kind of picking up on that, and definitely...
1: Yeah, yeah, I've been doing some reading uh, about just kind of early days, Velvet stuff, um, you know, uh, as we've been getting started on our show here, and he was really kind of like, the the thing that keeps coming up again and again is his desire to weld this harsh, uh, loud, fast, edgy rock and roll music with the literary, uh, artistic, lyrical sensibilities of, uh, I mean, like, Dunmore Schwartz obviously was kind of a major influence on him at Syracuse. Um, but also, you know, the, the, um, uh, people like Bob or even poets like Verlaine. And it seems so natural now, like, of course, of course, rock music goes with this, uh, artistic, uh, prose style. But at the time it was just like those two those were two worlds that did not intersect. And so when he puts things out, like we get on this first record, the Velvet Underground or Nico, it really kind of, uh you know, <laughs> throw some people for a loop. Yeah,
2: and in, he did it in a, in a very different way than Dylan did, I think, lyrically, whereas Dylan was very much into, you know, I, I see him more like in the poetry vein and Lou more in the literary vein, although although Lou, like, you know, says he was influenced by Ginsburg and, and some of the beats, but there's also that Edgar Allan Poe. And, oh,
0: yeah, well, well Poe. He likes Edgar Allan Poe and she's into Joe Green.
2: Yeah, all that's that, that kind of dark dark literature of some of the later like Hubert Selby twisted nightmarish addiction and, you know, subversion and things.
0: Poe is obviously uh if to anyone who follows Lou's career to the uh end, uh there's a, a big a big uh, bit a chunk spent on Poe with that whole record and the uh the the Raven, which is like his huge opus, just, uh, his kind of tribute to Poe, um, That's an opus. Which makes, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, if we were talking about what's an opus, <laughs> what's an opus, that, that <laughs> one's a, a, pretty much an opus. Um, I mean, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. I feel like people don't when people who hear about that record are surprised because it's not really one of his more well-known ones, but, uh, it goes back pretty deep. I mean, really deep, that, that impulse to like, uh, I mean, just what we were talking about. I guess we bring the literary into the into the music.
2: Yeah, especially something like *Telltale Heart*, which was is written in the in the first per- person as a confessional kind of thing, and you can that you can really sense and lose lyrics right oh, yeah. that material. Yeah,
0: and there's 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 a thing about like we think of Poe. I think a lot as being fanciful and like uh, almost. F- yeah, really, I think he's over, He's often thought of as like a fantasy writer by people who don't really know much about his work, but a lot of it is more like, it's kind of crime, or um, it's it's based in the real world. It's based in the far fringes and dark corners of reality, but it is, it has this sense of the real world in it, which is something I think Lou is like, really committed to bringing across in the music. It's not just um, flights of fancy for him a lot of the right. time. It's
1: yeah, there's and a there's a psychological element I think to a lot of uh, Poe's work that that Lou definitely picks up on and uh, and carries on um, and appreciates with his own work. Uh, we should probably hop in and talk about the record here in a moment. I did have one more question for you, Michael. When we were emailing, you said that this is not even your favorite Velvet's record. That Loaded is actually your <laughs> favorite Velvet's record, and that has been a uh, that's been a topic of uh, it's been a it's been a a little bit of a debate between Evan and I here. Uh, uh, one of us is more pro-loaded than the other, uh, just as far as Velvet Underground records go. So, can you just tell talk, tell yeah. tell us a little bit about your uh, your loaded feelings? It it
2: certainly is very uh, inspires lots of debate and arguments. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> where I mean, I, you listen to this record that we're going to talk about today, and you, you just see how why it's so important, why it's monumental, why it kind of changed everything and I don't challenge that at all. Mm-hmm. And I love this first album. Simply just as a lover of music, the songs themselves unloaded to me just, um, I just, you know, they. it's just a personal aesthetic choice. I just like them better, you know sure. what I mean? Um, there's something about, and, and, and in a way you could really see Loaded as the bridge between the Velvet Underground and and Lou's solo career, Mm -hmm. basically, and and where it would go from there. And I I just really like those songs. And I think because, you know, because it's John Cal was gone by then, and Doug Yule, um, a lot of people feel were not, was not a Velvet Underground, (laughs) everyone's favorite member, the Velvet Underground. Yeah, and he sings on a lot of the songs, which is odd because Uh, Lou didn't he sing
0: a whole Velvet Underground record?
1: I'll squeeze.
2: (laughs) Uh, So it's a weird record. The songwriting itself and the sound of the songs and the way that I just like. I mean, I don't know.
0: Well, so did Lou. So (laughs) you're in good company. He he was the one who, guess who, wanted it to sound that way. Wanted to push it in that direction. Um, And I mean, that is kind of another really interesting point about the the loaded versus like early Vu debate is that um, there's. This thing about the band that makes them so unique is that they're a collision of actual commercial ambition and actual full on avant garde music. And there's a push and pull between those things. And that means that sometimes, like, like Lou, I think his mission was to make that kind of adult sensibility in music, at least some part of his mission was to make that more prevalent, to, to bring that into, like, make it not just for kids and to like really put that across Mm -hmm. that it's not just for kids and teenagers. Yeah. And so I guess, I mean, you could look at Loaded as like an attempt to just bring that further. And then the first chance he gets practically right after his first solo record, is making Berlin. So like, he's not all about the like making the hits all the time. No, no. I mean, that,
2: that's kind of the beauty of him is that he really, he always kind of challenged himself uh, up until the end. He was, you know, he never rested on his laurels, although he sang, you know, his early and, you know, most known stuff in the catalog very often. But nah, like, you brought up The Raven. These are the stories of Ick and a Not exactly the point headstone. door Tell your tears Hard
1: heart, then he'll play with your mind If you haven't heard of him, you must be dead or blind These are the stories of Ick and
2: yeah, commercially, was, uh, he was never... A late career, I think Ecstasy is one of the most underrated Lou albums, which was a late career and a very good... It's
0: one. currently my favorite, honestly. Wow. Wonderful. It's a, It has some of his best writing, like just period. Rock Minuet
2: is one of his best songs ever. L- like a Possum. Another opus.
0: His giant, sordid s- sex yeah. epic. I got a hole in my heart the size of a truck. I won't be filled
2: by a one night bar. Slurping and squeezing ain't it just my look? Got a hole in my heart, the size of a truck. The size of a truck.
0: That song, Mad, is like one of the funniest, most outrageous lyrics in, in all this yeah. stuff. It is so funny. Yeah,
2: no. Ecstasy is a good song, as is uh, Paranoia and Kee. That's a really good album. Baton Rouge, I love, um, I think I like pretty much everything on that record. It's a good one. Agreed. That was late career, you know, he, he, was, uh, he was not, he never became a nostalgia thing and was, you know, greatest hits shows. He was always
1: pushing the envelope, which got to give him credit for that. Absolutely. That's why we love him, and that's why we are going to work our way uh, from the inning the, the Velvet Underground and Nico all the way to the end uh, with Lulu um, should we should we hop in should we do it yeah yeah let's go Sunday morning Sunday morning
2: chao the worlds behind you there's always someone around you who will call it's nothing at all
1: man <laughs> does it does it get like as far as a side one track one like first song you ever hear from a band ever does it get any better than like <laughs> it, this is it's perfect. It's just a perfect song. If you
2: didn't know anything about the band, the record, or anything, it's 1967. You put this song on, you're like, okay, this is kind of a interesting, sweet, you know, 60s poppy, you know, cool kind of song, which mm-hmm. a lot of artists probably could have done, you know, like singers uh, from that era, like I don't know, Nancy Sinatra or something. But no, yeah, know, sure, or anybody, but um. It's kind of this album really plays with going back and forth. Um, I think this because the next song, it's so it's sweet Sunday morning and it's very kind of charming. And the next song is about standing in Harlem waiting for to buy heroin. Right. <laughs> kind of funny. The, the, those two things side by side, you know?
0: It sounds kind of sweet and melancholy in this kind of gentle way, but the lyrics. In light of the rest of the record, actually have this kind of deep sort of sadness to them, or like the, a real melancholy. It's kind of like a little sinister, even.
1: Yeah, there's a sour, there's a sour note to it. Totally,
0: there's like a dramatic irony to the to this song, or it feels kind of like you don't even know what you're in for yet. And I think when I first heard the record, it was like I I had heard that they're like the dangerous band or whatever. Like people were like, oh, they're crazy, and it's like. Really? People are mad right. at this?
1: I feel, yeah, I had the same experience, like, putting this on, like, I, when I was, like, 16 or something, I'm like, all right, I'm going to listen to The Velvet Underground, this is going to be crazy, I know they're supposed to be the greatest, most out there rock and roll band ever, and then this is the first song I heard, yeah. and I was like, did I be, did I put the right record on? I don't get it.
0: Yeah, but it's a song that's, like, the poignancy of the lyrics, like, kind of creeps up on you later, I think.
2: Well, watch out the world's behind you like on first listen it could be like oh the world's behind you everything's okay and then you're like oh no it's like paranoia right the yeah like everybody's behind you look over your shoulder <laughs> exactly guess. you could take it that way I mean, it's a good song for nico you know, but she's
0: but, like, but, she's back up on this one oh she's back up i'm thinking
2: of uh, See, that's Lou singing. Yeah, mostly. that's
0: Lou, but he sounds so sweet and kind of, uh, he sounds boyish on it.
2: He almost sounds like a girl, actually. Yeah, okay. no, I mean, no, there's I
0: a reason why you would remember it as like, uh, surely that's not Lou Reed singing, because it just yeah. doesn't have that quality. Yeah, the vocals are
2: beautiful on this. I, I love it.
0: It's a beautiful way to start the record. It's such an understated way to start this album. I
2: don't
1: think he ever sound, sounded much like that again, yeah, not even not even on this record like this is its own kind of sui generis song right. I, th- I think he wrote this song like at the behest of Andy because Andy wanted some sort of like or maybe it was the record label Someone wanted yeah it was a late edition yeah as like a single basically it was and, the
0: dancing in the dark of the, uh, yeah, the dancing exactly
1: <laughs> I think it actually was written with the idea that Nico would sing it. Uh, but, you know, as, you know, kind of the lore behind this record goes, the push and pull between Lou wanting to just have this be a Velvets record and he was the lead singer uh, versus you know, Nico kind of being forced on him by Andy and Paul Morrissey. Uh, he ended up uh, taking lead on this. And then, yeah, Nico's in the background.
0: And that happened later with um, with After Hours. I think that that song was originally for Lou to sing. And then he realized, oh, Maureen Mo. That's a Mo song. Yeah, she should sing it. This is a song that uh, I originally had figured on featuring myself doing it with, you know, Spotlight and a Golden May dress. But then I figured, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if they're ready to accept that. So we, we got old Maureen out and we figured they'll believe her where they wouldn't believe me, even though I always
2: tell the truth. This will be our
0: last song for this set.
2: Yeah. So there's only th- there's three songs that Nico sings on this, right? She yep. does Femme Fatale. All Tomorrow's Parties, Yeah, I'll be a mirror, and I'll be Your mirror, yeah. Which
1: are the three songs that she was singing live when they were performing like with the Exploding Plastic Inevitable at this time? Um initially Andy, you know, who's credit as the producer on this record, uh, although he didn't really do too much in terms yeah. of studio, you know, producing. Um he wanted Nico to sing the whole thing. Lou wanted her to sing none of it, and so the um, the the, uh, the compromise they reached was she'll sing the song she sings live, and then I'll take the rest of them. That was a smart call. Con- I, I think so. <laughs> I agree. <yeah. laughs> uh, it ended up working out. Um, well, speaking of the next song, man, I'm waiting for the man. kick so much ass this Sunday morning in time waiting for the man like just you you already said it Michael but like what a perfect one-two punch to start this record
2: yeah it really throws you off and you know musically it's you know it's still kind of rock and roll it's got a little you know early 60s feel a little bluesy but the lyrics are n- nothing, I mean, nobody was writing lyrics like that at the time, as far as I know. I mean, they're specific yeah, right. and, and um, we haven't gotten into the really kind of out-there stuff yet, but the, the <laughs> lyrics are the tip-off that were, whoa, we're going from Sunday morning, now we're, waiting, we're on the corner in Harlem <laughs> waiting for heroin.
0: Did you listen, or have you heard the recently released early demo uh, that came out? It was like a 1965 demo that was basically unearthed of of Lou, heroin? And uh of there is one of heroin, but there's one of I'm waiting for the man of of Lou and John just strumming on guitars and yeah. playing a harmonica and singing it uh for the, like ostensibly the first time ever recorded. Um Um
2: yeah, they have it at the at the Lincoln Center, the new public library at Lincoln Center. They have it. Right. Have you been to that exhibit? Yeah. Two blocks from my
1: house, actually. Oh wow! Well, can you tell us a little bit about? Because we're both uh, out here in California, we we desperately want to go, but obviously not easy to walk two blocks. It's pretty um, it's pretty moving
2: to really get a sense of just because he say he saved like everything, which is kind of cool. Like, con, you know, like tour riders and wow. you know contracts, photos and. Uh, They have a lot of the demos that you just put headphones on while you're there. The Heroin one is particularly beautiful. I think he was like, so he was 23 years old, you know, in 1965 I think. Insane. Heroin were
0: uh, (laughs) music and lyrics, Lou Reed.
2: It's, it's a really great exhibit and beautiful, and there's some films, um, some instruments, uh, it's very moving to see.
0: It's really surprising that he would have kept a lot of stuff, he's like the mo- kind of does not strike one as the sentimental type in that way, but it, I think he knew that it was important, he definitely yeah. knew it was all important
1: i think beneath beneath the cool you know the the cool calm collected lou pose he's he's a teddy bear at heart he's a he's a sweetheart
2: in some ways he was a sweetheart i mean um he could be very uh prickly and sweet in the same moment kind of. right um the first time the first time I actually met him, that was the experience it's a funny story oh you met him yeah I, we were friends the last like ten years of his life, but wow. the first time I met him uh I was about 26 so like 1989 90. I used to see him walking around the village I'd lived in the village in my early 20s and so did he and he would you know you'd see him walking around I never approached him and then I was at a Knicks game Madison Square Garden and I saw him and I had just been cast in a movie called I shot Andy Warhol And I was playing on Dean, who was one of the Warhol superstars, but it was a friend, right? So I was like, this is a great icebreaker. (laughs) No, I'm going to go talk to Lou. The problem was, and I knew this because I read about it in the paper. Lou was really pissed off that they were making a movie about Valerie Solanas, who almost killed, you know, one of his best friends. But I was like, "Ah, I'll just say hi. And I I walked up to him, I said, hi, my name is Mike. I'm an actor. Um, I'm a big fan. I just got. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm doing this movie. I know you're, you're. You're really not happy about it. It's called "I Shot Andy Warhol." I just got cast. He's like, I think it's despicable. That disgusting. They're making a movie about this psychotic bitch. I'm like, I know, I know, I know. But uh, I'm playing a friend of yours on D, and he went, "Good luck," and let's like, away. And, and I just was like, oh, I felt so stupid. And then a few seconds later, we were on the escalator. At the garden, and he's like turning over his shoulder, looking back at me, and finally he kind of weighs me over. So I go, I walk back to him, and he says, uh, <laughs> "Listen, work hard, do your work, do a good job, and just remember one thing." He was very funny, and that was Aww. it. And then, I'm. We didn't really become friendly till, oh, about number of years after like during ecstasy during that tour I, sure. I met him at the show and then the last 10 years of his life we we stayed in contact and and um you know I was with him a bunch of times and I just I just that from then on we were friends but then you got that sense of like how <laughs> nasty he could be because he had that edge to him but um he, I think he was just really protective and. Over that real he was a very sensitive sensitive soul, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was uh, he was there. I mean, around. I mean, he remembers when that actually happened, when actually somebody went and shot Andy. And so, I mean, I I think that affects somebody when it's not just that he's a a standoffish character. I mean, I think things happened that really seem to have influenced that real things.
1: Yeah. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, under, oh, no. certainly understandable that he would have, yeah. you know, sort of conflicted feelings about that. I think John, didn't didn't John actually do the music for that movie? And I think that Lou was, like, that was another part of, like, their conflict. Like, Lou was really pissed that John was doing the music for John did I Shot Anywhere Hall. I think John did some stuff for that movie, yeah. Yeah, um, that's something that we'll probably need to cover at some point.
2: Yola Tango actually kind of played the Velvet Underground in the. It was, there's this party scene at the factory, and Yola Tango kind of dressed up a little bit like the. the Velvet.
0: Oh, That's yeah. g- great casting all around.
1: have yeah. 1989 of... Yola Tango. That's like man, whoever was making the movie, they they knew their shit. Well, I, Mary Heron made that movie.
2: She's a really good director. Um, but she was one of the first. Uh, writers in punk magazines she goes way back in that scene
0: she directed a little film called american psycho american oh psycho. yeah which we yeah which Damn. john also that. did music for
1: so yeah. Yeah, all right it's all part of the same Very great same crew same crowd yeah well i'm waiting for my man i'm waiting for them funny how it's i'm waiting for the man, the man, we write my it, man. and then yeah lou decides i'm gonna, I'm gonna be waiting for my man um, I love the, Bo- the Bowie does there's a, a live recording of Bowie doing this
2: that's tremendous I don't think I've heard that
0: Okay, I'll have to check that one out I, my favorite uh, cover of it is the John Cale in the 80s covered it just on piano And it is uh, terrifying. I've never heard that.
2: I got to hear it immediately. It's
0: it's great stuff. And it's a song that's kind of bulletproof. Like, it just works and works. It's just one of these battleships of a song. Yeah, perfect
2: song. Yeah, it's like one of those songs that you feel has always been there, and Lou just plunked it out of the universe, you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: that's literally like the way that Bob talks about writing, because we were a Bob Dylan podcast before we moved on to Lou and John. Like, that, Bob has that same exact statement. Like, the songs are out there, I'm just grabbing them from the ether and putting them down on paper. Um, on that note, actually, I feel like, uh, I don't know about you, Evan, but like all of these early Velvet songs and like the class- classic classics, you know, Waiting for the Man, Heroin, things like that, compared to things like Ballad of a Thin Man or um, All Along the Watchtower, like the Bob classics, you know, that Bob is always rolling out there and playing. Like, I always feel thrilled and excited to hear these Velvet songs in a way that I didn't feel about some of those early Bob songs. I don't know what some it of is about them, yeah. but it's just like, you know, Lou was playing Heroin his entire career. And like, there was never, never a dud, never a bad version of that.
0: It's just yeah. a, and we'll get to heroin. I, I don't even want to like get talk too much about it yet. Cause it's, it deserves a, we'll, we'll, we'll be there shortly. But, um, I agree. There's, there's something about some of these songs that just feels like, uh, I think it's because frankly, lose reluctance to go, uh, flowery with the language. Is something that keeps them feeling like really immediate. There's not much there to think like, oh, that sounds dated or that doesn't work anymore. It's
1: just so blunt. Right. Well, uh, speaking of blunt, speaking of straightforward, uh, Finfe Town. Yeah.
2: this is the first nico tune sure is this is the third song and now we're like we just heard i'm waiting for the man we're up in harlem buying dope and now here's this <laughs> european <laughs> voice you know female voice that sounds like no one else like this could be a, this could be another band yep. doing this one. yeah um, really interesting
0: it sounds like the just like this the uh sonic version of just like smoke curling in the air it's so sultry and and yet it's also so cold lyrically she's gonna
2: break your heart you know yeah she pulls you up just to put you down um
1: i wonder how you're number 37 (laughs) (laughs) 37, brutal uh yeah apparently this one uh written about edie sedgwick um who was obviously running in the factory crew at that moment in time with the velvets, uh, had a torrid affair with John, uh, very brief but torrid, uh, and then would later go on to be with Bob Newworth and obviously Bob Dylan and uh, meet her own tragic end a couple years later. Um, I, you know I, like this is just a perfect kind of, you know it might not be the most charitable characterization of her as a person, but I really think it is like a perfect crystallization of just like what? what she what she was like the idea behind her
0: it's interesting to think about if this song is you know allegedly written about her and as is like a rolling stone this is like the prequel to that song
2: (laughs) (laughs) yes um oddly enough you know i lived in um i lived in santa barbara california from um 19 of 2012 um for about seven eight years and um Strangely enough, right? So uh, I had a post office box and I used to go to the post office a couple of times a week. One of the guys working behind the window was a guy named Michael. I can't remember his name, his last name. A really good guy. He was Edie's uh, last husband or maybe first husband. So when she kind of burnt out in New York and crashed, she's from Santa Barbara. She moved back to Santa Barbara. And I think they were in a rehab or some kind of psych hospital and they met and got married and he runs her estate wow you know when they they did some big Edie sedgwick like uh maybe it was um bergdorf's or bloomingdale something like that they were doing some Edie thing and they had to go through him and he still controls like her image and estate like and he was her her husband and they lived together and uh, in Santa Barbara, when they both kind of got well, which I, I found really fascinating. Yeah, that's Michael. Michael Post. I was just reading Michael about post. this the yeah, other day. I, yeah. Ironically, he worked at the post office. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, why, um, that's why. That's really why you got a job dude. there. <laughs> good dude. No you know really knows a lot about the to- that time and and very smart and, and brilliant guy. And uh, we used to have lots of conversations about Edie and Warhol and that whole scene. So it was just so random. One day we started talking,
1: and wow. Just the two of you just intersected at a, at a post office in Santa Barbara. Yeah, it's really <laughs> wild.
0: wild. It's nice that her estate is being managed by somebody like that, and not yeah. somebody who's willing to like shill out every bit of her life for movies or whatever. Yeah, whatever. no, he's
2: very protective of her, of her legacy, which is and respectful, which is cool. Yeah,
0: I mean, this song is sort of an immortal. Uh, if this song is the type of song written about you, it's. It's it's a pretty cool song to have written about you even if yeah. it's not necessarily making you seem like a saint. Um it's just such a a beaut- it has it really touches I think for the first time on the record on this thing this other aspect of the Velvet Underground especially in this period here which is this glamour that surrounds them that thing about them being a, around Andy or Andy you know really being like the force that brings them into prominence like there's this really interesting friction there or just a lack of friction between the highest glamour of the art scene and downtown culture at the time and all these huge parties and people wearing furs and whatever and, and then these people who are there but have no interest in seemingly no interest in like really partaking in the
2: the sumptuous excess of that, and most of them have no money. <laughs> those, yeah. those people, yeah. right? Um, it's a very. It's, this song kind of feels like Warhol, right? Like just whatever this that the factory in that scene, like you're saying, what that evokes. This song kind of feels like that. Yeah, like something like the 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 film, the screen tests, and the you know the 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 type of art that he was making. You know. Hollywood iconography and stuff
1: like that it really kind of evokes that I think really well totally and the the i think the the like the interplay between Nico's lead vocal and then Lou's just like complete deadpan uh backing dead vocal back. like it's such a perfect like yeah. <laughs> mixture between the two <laughs> I just uh it, it, they nailed this one
0: That that deadpan background vocal that they do t- so
1: good Cause everybody knows <laughs> They do it
0: on the the gift. There's that part, of the first song on White Light, White Heat, in the story when it's like uh, she she me. Most of the day. they all go
1: ah oh. oh. in yeah. this way. That's like so so mean. Yeah, uh, it's a perfect little patch. Um, Venus and Furs. Now you go
2: off in <laughs> completely uncharted
1: territory. <laughs> now we're getting there. <laughs> i uh-huh.
2: but sonically lyrically it's just not if, if you weren't thrown you know by the lyrics of I'm waiting for the man and combination of the other two now by now when
1: you're into this song it's like whoa what planet yeah. are we on? yeah we're through this stargate yeah if you're just listening to this record and not really paying attention to the to the words you know for the first couple times you're spinning it you're like all right this is a pleasant record that that second song is kind of jittery but you know it seems good and then even if you aren't paying attention to the words as soon as the first second of Venus and first yeah, it's hits it's just
0: like the the lights go down
1: Dreams that would awake me, different colors made of tears. Yeah, it just like, and this is, I think, is where John really comes to the forefront most, right. like, musically, that that yes. insane viola uh, tone that he adds through here and the, like, almost kind of repetitive loop element to it, it's like, it really it makes you this... feel uneasy.
0: It's dirge-like, or, like, uh, it sounds like some awful ceremony is taking place which is really kind of fitting exactly it kind of is right it's like an incantation yeah and there's something that i think sterling morrison said which is that like if you if we really had to boil it down like this is the one like this is the song that i know nobody was doing this nobody sounded like this before if we really want to talk about what set us apart it's this song
2: it's this. It's sonically, and a lot of that's John and the kind of exoticism that he's bringing. And you know, it could be Indian. It could be
0: yeah, Middle yeah.
2: Eastern. There's just sounds it could be foreign. Some satanic church somewhere. You know, some weird, like you said, some kind of ceremony.
0: And it's a good time to mention Mo Tucker because the thing that keeps it all together, and it's all through this record. You can just feel her like, just holding it down with such restraint. And it keeps the thing legible always.
2: Mo was, I think, out of any rock drummer, the closest to the human heartbeat.
0: Wow,
2: wow, you know, really has that. Her sound is like the heart, the human heart, in a way. Especially yeah. here. Yeah,
1: yeah, very heavy on like toms, um, which keeps you, yeah, kind of, yeah, keeps you grounded in this song. That just like this song. <laughs> grounded is the right word because the
0: drumming having like that reliance on toms um, it makes it feel like ancient yeah it brings sure. it even better it's like it has this kind of scary old feeling
2: it's very uh, and also just lyrically there's some beautiful like like uh for instance uh, wish whiplash girl child in the dark is beautiful but i so love it um I am tired. I'm weary. I could sleep for a thousand years. A thousand dreams that would awake me. Different, different co- colors made
0: of tears. tears. Yeah, that one always blows me away. Beautiful
2: lyrics. I mean, just gorgeous.
0: I really want to get into like the uh, like a mythopoetic read of this, which is is my inclination always. It is kind of like a, a ceremony being taken place here, which is the joining for the first time, really, of this true avant garde sensibility, not just sensibility, but just true avant-garde, uh, ambition and exploration and popular music. And that's this is the sound of that happening. Like this this relationship is happening in the song of the sadomasochistic union. It is kind of interesting how it mirrors that thing of uh Lou's most far out ideas as a writer meeting John's uh, natural comfort in this really far deep end of music, and they just find each other here.
2: Yeah, it's like the Big Bang, almost, of like, punk, post-punk, alt-rock, grunge. It's kind of like the, the, the spark
1: that gave birth to lots of... <laughs> <great> yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the common ancestor of all of it. 100%. It's It's amazing. Yeah, there's this uh, the John. I'm, I'm reading John's autobiography right now, uh, and he keeps or he, he's mentioned a couple times in it how he and Lou were this perfect artistic collaboration at this moment in time, where Lou had the the songwriting chops, um, but he didn't necessarily have the confidence to really go for it and go beyond his comfort zone, and that's where John was living, coming from his time with Lamont Young and. The Dream Syndicate and all of the super avant-garde stuff that he had had experience with up until this point. So this, I think, is the perfect example of the two of them together. Like, this is this is it.
2: And the song is timeless. It doesn't, It, you know, um, like, Sunday morning, Femme fatal, even waiting for the man a little bit, has a feel of the 60s. Venus and Furs could be, I don't know, it, you know, it could have been recorded today, you know what I mean? Totally.
0: It's, or in the 1800s. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. It exists out of time. Another dimension. Yeah exactly
0: you've just heard part one of our two part episode with Michael Imperioli about the Velvet Underground and Nico and if you want to hear the second part you can subscribe on Patreon Joker shiny
1: shiny
2: boots of leather flash, girl child in the dark in bells your servant don't forsake him strike dear mistress cure his heart